0: This week we're returning to Gideon, probably the last week we will spend with Gideon, but this is the, in the movie there's kind of the climax of the story, well this is the climax of Gideon's story, the battle, so this is the exciting part. (laughs) If you turn to Judges chapter 7, that's where we will spend our time today. You know, when I'm reading or researching during the week, sometimes I'm kind of surprised by what I found, what I find as I do it. And when I was looking into Ehud and the significance of his left-handedness, I was surprised to find a website that claimed that left-handedness was evil, and that everyone should be using the right hand. I don't know if we have any left-handed people. <laughs> but, and I, honestly, when I first saw it, I thought that they were joking. But when I read it, no, they were, they were pretty serious, and even the comments supported that point of view. I... I I don't know what basis other than it I know they were saying it's it's the, the right hand is the strong hand, but it seemed like a fairly silly argument to me. And <laughs> this week when I was looking about our looking for things about our desire for more and how we often pray for more, I was kinda of surprised to find that there are websites divided to prayers for winning the lottery. Prayers that work for winning the lottery. And most of the prayers are along the lines of, Lord, if I just had this money, I'd have what I need, and I could give more to you. I could give some to you. I could give so much more richly if I won the lottery. And basically, they were saying, think of all the people you could help, Lord, by allowing me to win the lottery. Surely, Lord, you'd like all those resources to help build your kingdom. Clearly, this is an incorrect response. An incorrect perspective. God uses what we give him for his purpose. He uses what little we give him for his purpose. Jesus saw more worth in the widow's coin than the Pharisee's bag of coins. Twice he used small meals to feed thousands. No warrior in Israel's army would confront the giant Goliath, but God used a willing shepherd boy to defeat him. God used the prophet Elijah the single prophet to embarrass and then slay 400 prophets of Baal. God's work is not accomplished through our strength. The creator of the universe doesn't need the money we might give him if we won the lottery. He accomplishes what he wants and blesses us by allowing us to participate in his work. He encourages us to participate because he wants a relationship with us. When we give to God of our time and resources, we align ourselves with his purpose. And it isn't God that's blessed by this, it's us. So last week, Gideon had asked the Lord for confirmation that he was to lead the Israelite army. And God had given Gideon confirmation through two miracles. And this week we find Gideon camped, when the chapter begins, camped with 32,000 Israelites overlooking an army of Midianites numbering 135,000 camped in the valley below him. And I don't know exactly what Gideon was thinking, but I know if I were him, looking around at my army and then turning to the massive army below, I would have been praying. And my prayers probably would have sounded much like the people asking to win the lottery. Lord, if you would just give me another 100 or 200,000 men, then I would have the overwhelming force to smash your enemy. And then I could accomplish what you've promised. And I could accomplish it with minimum loss of Israelite life. And from our perspective, more is better. If I have to fight a battle, I'd rather have more men than less men. If a bill comes due, I'd rather have more than enough money to pay it. And if I have to deal with an unexpected emergency, I'd rather have more than enough time to spare to deal with it. But there are times when more may not be better. Because when we have more than enough, we lose something important. We lose our perspective. There's a story of a man who was apprehensive about his first airplane ride. His friends, eager to hear how it went, asked if he enjoyed the flight. Well, he commented, it wasn't as bad as I thought it might be, but I'll tell you this, I never put all my weight down. If only I had more time, I'd spend it volunteering. If only I had more money, I could give more generously. If I had more skill, then I could really serve. If only I had more men, then I could win this battle. If we have everything we think we need, we don't really think our weight is down. The deception we all fall victim to is believing that we don't have to put our weight down if we have what we need. We don't learn to rely on God for what we need. We don't learn to trust in his provision. And ultimately, what we really need is not more money, it's not more time, it's not more men. It's a relationship with our God. So if we're riding on an airplane, our weight is down. And if we are living and breathing, our weight and our fate is resting entirely in God's hands. And our scripture today teaches that God wants us to rely on him. He wants us to put our trust in him. And when we do... Sometimes less is more. Turn with me to Judges chapter 7. If you stand, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Let to begin. Early in the morning, Jerobal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped in the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouth. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. Pray with me. Father, teach us through Gideon's story. Teach us through this word. Help us to trust in you for our needs, to rely on you, because ultimately we have to rely on you. It is only through you that we are saved. It is only through you that we are blessed. Teach us today, Lord, and give us something that we can take home and use. I pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Early in the morning, Jerobal, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. I think it's interesting that the author introduces Gideon by his nickname here, Jerobal, which means let Baal contend. And as we read this passage, we're meant to see, I think, that the God of Israel is the only true God. Baal was a powerless no-god. no god Baal couldn't even contend with Gideon. And Baal could definitely not give Israel prosperity or peace. So while Baal was only good for the dumpster, and the Asherah pole was only good for firewood, the God of Israel is a different type of God. Baal could not contend with the invaders, but the God of Israel is more than equal to the task. The Lord told Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. 22,000 men left, and 10,000 remained. Think about this through the eyes of Gideon. It took two miraculous signs before Gideon trusted that the Lord would do as he promised. And now here he stands, a man who has just sounded the trumpet for his fellow Israelites to come to war. And in his eyes, only 32,000 came to face the 135,000-man army camp below. And perhaps he's thinking, God will send more. Or perhaps he's going to give me some brilliant military strategy that I can beat this army with four-to-one odds. Maybe he'll manipulate the weather like he did with Barack. Maybe there's some act of sabotage, like with Ehud. But instead of giving Gideon instructions on how to get more men or telling him how to use the few that he has effectively, God tells him, you've got too many men. I can't deliver Midian to me, or Israel would boast. My own strength has saved me. In chapter 6, the first question Gideon asked the angel of the Lord was, Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Surely by that time Gideon had heard of Ehud's victory over the Moabites and Barak's victory over the Canaanites. But apparently those had not been enough as evidence for him to see that God was present. It seems that the Israelites had Claimed that it was their own strength that saved them. Back in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 8, in verses 10 through 17, Moses had warned them that this would happen. He said, starting in verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, When you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manatee in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So this time, God wants to make it absolutely clear to the Israelites and to Gideon that this liberation has nothing to do with Gideon and the strength of the Israelite army. This liberation will come entirely from God's hands, the hand of the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. So Gideon is instructed to let the men who are afraid go home, and probably they stay standing there looking across at the army. Gathered in the valley below that they're about to be called to fight, more than two-thirds of his army leave. And I think of this as if you were one of the 10,000 watching half the army leave, these were pretty brave men that stayed. I never realized this until I was researching, but this is actually a Deuteron- a, Deuteron- a command in Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> Moses had given instructions when he raised military force. In verse 8 in chapter 20, he says, The officer shall say, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. I wonder if Gideon knew that he was following Mosaic law when he made this declaration. But regardless, it has the effect here of the army of sending the faint-hearted home so that the fellow soldiers will not be disheartened. God sent home all those who had been faithful to respond to Gideon's call, but did not really think that they could win. And as they melted away, I do think it says a lot about the character of the 10,000 who stayed. They watched their 4-to-1 deficit suddenly change to -to 135-to-1 deficit. And they had the opportunity to get up and walk away, but they chose to stay. These 10,000 believed that God could deliver them. But God tells Gideon there are still too many men, and he separates out 300 men out of this brave 10,000-man army by how they drink from a stream. 9,700 men got down on their knees to drink, but 300 of them bent over and took water in their cupped hands and drank. Lapped like a dog, it says. Many scholars argue whether this means the 300 men were more watchful or qualified for battle or whether God just wanted a very small amount of men. But it does seem to me that if the first test was to keep the bravest soldiers, this test was likely to apply a higher standard in dismissing the 9,700 soldiers. So what remained of the 32,000-man army that had responded was 300 of the bravest, fittest men in Israel— This was an elite group of men. But I don't want to sing these men's praises too highly. God was satisfied to use these 300 men, but I think we have to ask, how many men did God really need to save Israel? Gideon had asked, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? When we think about it, how many men had had to fight their way up out of Egyptian slavery? God didn't use any men for that. And God didn't necessarily need these 300 men, but he used them so that he could experience, so that they could experience his presence and his power. When Gideon asked this, the response is, Gideon, do you really wish to see God work in a miraculous way, delivering his people, as he had done when he delivered them from slavery of Israel? You know That can be arranged, and it was arranged. God raised up Gideon, a very reluctant leader, much like Moses. He was about to orchestrate a battle that would shame the heathen gods, just like the plague shamed the Egyptian gods, and in demonstrating his sovereignty over all of creation. He would pit 300 men armed with trumpets and torches in jars of clay against one of the largest, most powerful armies of the day, And he, God, would win the victory. Gideon, are you looking for the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? Here he is. Here is I am. And we need to note here that Gideon does not protest this time. He doesn't ask for a sign like he had in the previous chapters. Here he is completely obedient to God's instructions. It seems that Gideon has learned to trust the Lord and his promises. However, God is very gracious to Gideon, and he knows that even though he's trusting, he's probably a little nervous about taking 300 men into battle. He knows that excluding 99% of the fighting force that Gideon had managed to summon must be a little hard for Gideon. So God gives Gideon some reassurance in verses 9 through 15. In verse 9, Says, during that night, Lord said to, to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples that settled in the valley, thick as locusts, Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this could be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. I'm not sure how long the encampment of 32,000 Israelites have been there, but after narrowing down this army, God calls them to attack immediately that very night. And while he doesn't give... Gideon any wiggle room in the command to get up and go down, he does tell him that if he's afraid, he can go down with his servant and listen to the Midianite soldiers talk, and he will be encouraged. And Gideon decides that perhaps he could use a little encouragement before attacking this force 450 times his size. So he travels across the valley And at first, there isn't a whole lot to encourage Gideon. It says the Midianites and the Malachites, they had settled in the valley thick as locusts, and their camels could no more be counted than sand on the seashore. And I think there may have been a temptation to turn back at that point. But Gideon continues on, and as he arrives at the camp, he overhears a soldier's conversation with his friend. He says a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Barley was the cheapest grain available at the time. Barley cakes were really worthless things. They're often fed, they were often fed to livestock as they were to men. But it wasn't the barley here that collapsed the tent. It was the force with which it struck. Now Gideon's army wasn't a potent army, it was a potent army, not because of anything special about it, but because of the one who wielded it. I would not want to go armed into battle with a barley loaf, but for God, a barley loaf is as good as any other weapon because it's He who wields it. And after the soldier told his dream, his friend interprets it. I think we can tell a lot by his interpretation. This could be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when I read this, it reinforces why 22,000 fearful Israelites have been sent home from the army. Apparently, the Midianite army was full of fearful soldiers. And the soldiers were more afraid of Gideon than he was of them. And Gideon took great encouragement from that. And it may be a little speculative to say that this fear was widespread. It could be that God had sent Gideon to this one spot at just the right moment to encourage him. But I think this fear was traveling through the Midianite encampment. And I think that because first, the encouragement Gideon took from it. He immediately bows down and worships. And then he returns to his camp and immediately calls the 300 to battle. To me, it seems he understood that there was some doubt and fear making its way through the Midianite force. Secondly, I believe the Midianites had begun to fear because God gave, them, gave this assurance to the Israelites as they were heading toward the Promised Land. In Exodus 15, 14 through 16, he says, "'The nations will hear and tremble. "'Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. "'The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. "'The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling.'" The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. And in Exodus 23, 27, he says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. The last reason I believe that God had already begun to produce a panic was because of the upcoming reaction of this Midianite army. Even if this story began with one soldier that Gideon overheard, with as much time as it took Gideon to return to his camp and gather his men, there was time for this dream to make its way through the camp. And this would have definitely added to some panic and chaos when he attacked. Gideon, when he gets back, he immediately calls his men to battle. And in verse 16, he fills them in on the battle plans, the unorthodox battle plans. Verse 16, he says, dividing the, the author says, dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars which were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shida, toward Zerara, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola near Tabba. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. It's a simple, if somewhat unorthodox, plan. The 300 men were divided into three groups, 100 men each. Each man will be armed with a clay vessel, with the concealed light of a torch within, and a trumpet. Actually, the trumpet is a shofar, a ram's horn, like the priest blew at Jericho before the walls came tumbling down. And everyone is instructed to do as Gideon does. Following Gideon, they will blow their horns and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so the 300 men reached their positions in the middle of the night. And just at the beginning of the watch, the middle of the watch, which of course would have added to some confusion, these men, half asleep, coming from their tents, walking out, trying to adjust their eyes to the night, and all of a sudden they hear a crash, and they see torches come up all around the camp. And then they hear this trumpet sound, this loud, annoying trumpet sound, Wesley, And then you hear 300 answer that all around the camp, half blind. The sentries run away. And they're running through the camp, and the other men pick up swords. And in the confusion, they begin to kill one another. After all, if you're in an army, only a very small percentage of your army is going to have the horns, the rest are going to be armed with weapons. You're not going to arm all of your men with torches, they're going to be armed with weapons. So when they see these torches, they hear these horns, their natural assumption is there's a large army behind these men. And they panic. And in the darkness and confusion, the Lord causes the Midianite army to turn on each other and begin killing one another as they try and run from what they assume is a large Israelite force about to descend upon them. But there is no large army about to sweep through the Midianites. And while the Midianite army below destroys themselves, these 300 300 Israelite hornblowers are standing in positions around the camp, watching them do it. They didn't advance, they didn't retreat, they just stood there and watched God decimate their enemy. And then at some point, the Midianites get their act together and flee. They leave behind their supplies, many of their weapons, and they just run away. And these 300 follow them, and they attack and start to pick off the stragglers as they flee. And eventually the Israelites from the other tribes, Naphtali, Asherah, and Manasseh, join in and destroy this army. And we who are reading this account have to arrive at the conclusion that it was not Gideon who was the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story, not Gideon. God gave the Israelites victory over the Midianites. God chose a doubting Thomas as Israelites' deliverer. He chose a small fighting force, and really the most unusual weapons you could imagine to defeat this Midianite army and to deliver the Israelites. We cannot possibly come away from this story giving any credit to Gideon or his men for the victory. The victory is the Lord's and the Lord's alone. The hero is not Gideon, it is God. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thinking differed greatly from Gideon's, and often it differs greatly from ours as well. We think the more troops to fight the Midianites, the more resources we have, the better. Gideon was fearful because he wasn't looking at the Lord. He was looking at himself and his abilities. He was looking at the barley loaf and wondering how it could be used to defeat the Midianites. God wasn't concerned about the victory. The victory was certain because he was involved in it. God was concerned that the Israelites might miss his hand in the victory. And that's why he tells Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And so while Gideon wanted more warriors, more assurance, God wanted less. God wanted to make it absolutely clear that it was his victory. And thinking about this this week, I was thinking about our, our congregation is few in number. But I absolutely believe that God has a purpose for us. I believe that we are seeking God's will. And I know that I feel blessed by what God is accomplishing through this congregation. I think we'd all do well to think more like God and less like men. We'd all do well to place our trust entirely in the one who is sovereign and absolutely sufficient for any task. We do well to be more concerned with honoring God who provides for us than seeking to become self-sufficient. Because we will never be self-sufficient. We will always need our God. We do well not to dwell on our inadequacies, not to look look at ourselves and think about what we can't do, but to look at God and think about what he can do. Think about his sufficiency, not our insufficiency. And as we come to know him better and think more about what he does and see his glory, we will become more and more courageous to pursue the things that bring him glory. Gideon's 300 men really weren't needed for the battle. God could have done it all on his own. They were there to witness God's glory. They were involved so that God could show them his strength. And like Gideon and his 300 men, as we share in the Lord's victories, as we look to his purpose, we will be blessed through them also. Let's pray. Father, it is often easy to look at ourselves and think we can't do this, we need more. Give us more so that we can bless you. Pray that you change our perspective. Help us to look at you, the all-sufficient omnipotent creator of the universe know that you can use us you can use barley loaves to defeat armies go with us this week help us to rely on you your strength help us to know your strength help us to see your strength demonstrate it to us demonstrate your glory help us never to think that it is by our hands that your will is accomplished only through your hands that your will is accomplished, and we are blessed through your use of us. Develop your relationship with us. I ask this in your holy name. Amen.